Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Busting Brackets podcast. I'm Connor Hope here with my co-host, Brian Ralph, and it is just the two of us today. We're here to talk about the past weekend in college basketball and the upcoming Final Four. It's finally here. Biggest stage in college basketball in Minneapolis is about to be entered. Play is about to be started. Brian, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe that we're already at this point, you know? No, absolutely. Especially with, I mean, this past weekend, the, these Elite Eight games, it's the best Elite Eight I think I've ever witnessed. Uh, what about you? Yeah, by margin of victory, it was the closest Elite Eight in terms of the margin of victory combined of all four games of any, any year of the NCAA tournament. And we had talked about last week, with the lack of upsets in the first round, that it, it left a lot of good teams for the second weekend. And we were hoping we would get good games, and it certainly delivered. No, absolutely. And I think it's it's going to be a little bit disappointing. Uh, some of the teams that went out, obviously, some of the biggest stars in the tournament all lost this weekend. Uh, Gonzaga, they, you know, Rui and Brandon Clark, you won't get to see them in the Final Four. Uh, Zion Williamson, RJ Barrett, won't get to see them. Carson Edwards is gone. Just cancel, cancel the rest of the season if Zion and Duke's not playing. Cancel <laughs> the rest of the season. But yeah, but I mean, these games were great. I, I just wanted to get your, you know, a sense of um, what was your favorite game so far through the first, let's say, all the rounds, first four rounds. Well, I think game. I think you have to pick Virginia Purdue just in terms of the entertainment value and the level of basketball and shot making that we saw. There was the the obvious ending, uh, and Mamadi Diakite hitting that shot to force overtime. That I don't know how he got the ball. I don't know how Virginia ended up with the ball in the backcourt with two seconds left and won the game. But just the shot making really from the, the whole second half through, I mean, it, it was just back and forth trading punches. Carson Edwards would come down here three. Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome would answer him on the other end. It was, it was just high-level, really fun basketball. And it was the kind of game that the tournament had been lacking to this point, I think. Yeah, I mean, we, we've definitely had some moments, you know, Tremont Waters hitting that lay up at the end of regulation or at the end of the game right. to win the game for LSU and and you know some other big moments but nothing really quite like that where the entire game was just fun to watch. Yeah, what do, what do you think? Cuz I mean we had the UCF game where you know they were within inches of beating Duke. The Virginia Tech game was another close game with Duke but didn't really feel like it was that kind of intense at least to me. What was your your favorite game? I mean I I'd have to go the same as you, that Purdue-Virginia uh, game. I think a lot of the other close games really shouldn't have been that close. Obviously, we're talking the overtime game between Tennessee and Iowa, uh, the near buzzer beater game between New Mexico State and Auburn. There were a lot of comebacks um, and a lot of games that were closer, I think because of a lack of execution by the team that won, not necessarily, you know, uh, anything miraculous from the team that came back. So um, it's kind of disappointing to see from that respect that the Elite Eight was really the only close, you know, set of games. But, uh, I mean, th there were some other fun ones to watch. Um, obviously, that Duke-Michigan State game, you know, up until the end was was pretty pretty good. Uh, yeah, I, I, kinda, I thought it kind of got bogged down 
at the end. Now, we've seen yeah. that happen a couple times this year in, in games like that, but it just kind of got bogged down with fouls, replays, poor decisions, bad shots, you know, just kind of – it felt weird. You kind of look at the score and you're like, I should feel more into this than I am right now. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think that for me, if I'm looking at the earlier rounds, I really liked the UC Irvine Kansas State game. I, mm-hmm. I know that Kansas State was shorthanded, but there were some big moments in that game too. Max Hazard hitting that three um, was, was was huge. But yeah, nothing really over the top exciting outside of that Purdue Virginia game, which which is incredible to me that Virginia was involved in the most <laughs> exciting game in the NCAA We, we wouldn't tournament. normally think that. We wouldn't correlate that. I do think it's funny. Uh, every tournament, whoever makes a long run, there's always a, a game that everybody kind of struggles with. Everybody has that game. All the top seeds have that game where they don't play well. And it's the teams that, that win that advance, the teams who don't. That, that lose and go out early, like a, a UNC losing to Auburn in Sweet 16, uh, Kentucky having their off game against Auburn as well. Uh, you could argue Duke had three off games but still found a way to get to the Elite Eight. But you mentioned the Auburn-New Mexico State game, which was a, a great game and incredible comeback by New Mexico State. If a guy hits a wide-open three in the corner, Auburn's suddenly one of the season's bigger disappointments maybe in terms of expectations as opposed to being in the Final Four. Um, Michigan State was down in the second half to Bradley in the first round as well. And Virginia was down 14 to Gardner-Webb, and it looked like they were going to lose to a 16 seed for the second year in a row. And all of them kind of overcame that and play are playing their best basketball of the tournament, I thought, in those Elite Eight rounds. At Texas Tech, though, we haven't seen a struggle like that. And we'll we'll go to that, the Texas Tech-Gonzaga game coming out of that West region. But Texas Tech, to me, has looked like the most consistently strong team so far in the tournament. Yeah, I, I think what benefits Texas Tech, and you definitely saw it against Gonzaga, you saw it against Michigan, is that they, whether it's their, you know, no middle defense or uh, the fact that, you can they can win if any of their players are hitting shots you know they can go with Jarrett culver they can use utilize uh mooney or mm-hmm. davide moretti um they've got two solid players in the middle they just never really get pushed off their game and i don't know if i've seen them even in some of their losses really get pushed off their game you know their offense has struggled at times this season but They've just kind of they have that mental fortitude that I don't think we saw with a lot of uh, you know the other teams. Gonzaga I, had some big runs, and Texas Tech just kept plugging along. I think Texas Tech may have had that bad loss against West Virginia in the Big Twelve tournament because that's that's the only time they've lost since February second mm-hmm. was to a, a bad West Virginia team in the Big Twelve tournament. The impressive thing for me has been the way the other guys have stepped up for Texas Tech, the non-Jarrett Culvers of the world, yeah. because we know what we are, we know what they are defensively. We know what Jarrett Culver can do for them offensively. But what's taken them from where they were in December when they went toe to toe with Duke but couldn't, you know, make enough plays down the stretch to now is the fact that those guys you mentioned, Moretti and Mooney, uh, even Brandon Francis, Kelly Edwards off the bench, those guys can make plays now and are doing so on a consistent basis, and that. I think made them a tough cover for Gonzaga, um, especially when they made Gonzaga work on offense the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that, and I mentioned this earlier on Twitter, 
defense has really been the story of this this tournament. Mm -hmm. The teams that have been good on defense. I mean, even Auburn has been playing some of the its better defense, um, especially in that Kentucky game. Yeah, I was, was going to uh, say that's that's how they beat Kentucky. They didn't. They had kind of gotten here because of their hot shooting, but we're only I think seven to twenty three from three in that game. Like it wasn't a, a, a absurd shooting effort that won them that game. It was the fact that they sort of outgritted and out tough, out defended uh, a bigger, more talented Kentucky team. Yeah, and, and I mean I know people right now are talking about experience, um, especially since the four Final Four teams have very little in the way of freshman production. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Kihei Clark for Virginia is the only freshman in their rotation, really. Uh, Aaron Henry has, has come up and played a role for Michigan State, but he wasn't necessarily one of those top-end recruit kind of guys, and he's still a role player on that team. Um, Auburn doesn't really have anybody, and Texas Tech doesn't really have anybody that makes a, a significant impact, except for maybe Kyler Edwards, who's their you know, their seventh or eighth man, uh, it, it is a, a no to experience. And there is something to be said for you getting a, a tournament situation, a one game scenario where in a, in a tight game, having that experience makes a difference. And I think we can go back to that Michigan state Duke game and just look at who was more comfortable making plays when they needed to down the stretch. Michigan state executed at, at really high level running sets and that got open shots. Duke sort of, and, you can blame Coach K, I think, for this. I think, well, I, I think Coach K and Calipari are getting uh, a little bit too much blame and uh, sort of looking for here. They're getting, I, I think they're getting hammered a little bit too hard here by critics for fog in the Elite Eight because I think what they've done this year is good. But I do think you can criticize Coach K for the fact that late in that game, while Michigan State was running a lot of offense and executing, Duke wasn't. Duke was essentially getting the ball to, to Zion or RJ and trying to get them in a position where they could go left and drive. And that was it. There was no real real playmaking in that game. Um, I was a little bit surprised with what I saw from Duke this tournament in terms of just a, a subpar level of play. I don't know what, what did you see from them that you were maybe surprised about. Yeah, I think that Duke, even more so than they have all year, relied too much on two players mm -hmm. and you know Zion doesn't take a shot between five feet and the and the three-point line so you can kind of le almost leave him open in the mid-range because you know okay. he's going to drive at the basket or shoot from three um and they went up against some solid interior defense defensive players and just if you're going to give the if you're going to give the ball to two guys you got to make sure that you run plays where those two guys don't have to do everything themselves, you know, run them off screens and do stuff like that. But it seemed like they were giving the ball to RJ Barrett or Zion Williamson at the top and just letting them drive to the basket. And it wasn't. Working. Yeah. It, it, they would like run dribble handoffs up top to try and get them going left. And then there's, you know, four Michigan state guys there because that's what Duke's been doing the entire time. And so instead of trying to do anything else, they turn around and hand the ball off to the other one who tries and do tries to do the same thing. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of creativity on their part. Maybe out, outside of the, the final four teams, we'll touch on them in a second. Who do you think had the best run or, or the team that surprised you the most of the teams that made the second weekend and, and consider that a success, even though they, they didn't make the final four? Well, I mean, I think you have to go to Oregon mm -hmm. uh, coming in. They obviously, they were the only double digit seed to make it to the second weekend. 
played some of their best basketball, ran into a team that for most of the year I had as the, you know, the best team in basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously Duke was the most talented, but Virginia was the best team pretty much start to finish. And they ran into that, that team and just couldn't, couldn't win that game. But Oregon, especially with the loss of their star player right at the start, you know, kind of had a rough go early on in the season, early on in Pac-12 play, really stepped it up in February and March. Um, outside of that, I mean, Texas Tech surprised me. They really, other than Gonzaga, they didn't have, an ish, have any issues mm-hmm. in the tournament. Um, and even against Gonzaga, they, they controlled the game from start to finish. Uh, they were down at the half, but they, you, you kind of knew they were in a spot they wanted to be in at halftime. Right. I think you can even look at Purdue as well. I mean, cons- especially considering what we all thought of them in the preseason, losing four starters from last year's Sweet 16 team. If you would have told somebody in October that they were going to go further, that this team was going to go further than what they did last year, I, you would have looked at them like they had four heads because that just wasn't in the realm of possibility. And you got to give a lot, ton of credit to Carson Edwards, obviously, for what he was able to do. Matt Painter, I don't think, got enough credit for the job that he did this season with that team, you know, there are fair criticisms of Painter as a coach, but his the job he did this year, getting those guys to play at a high level, winning the Big Ten co-regular season championship, and then making the Elite Eight, while it was certainly on the back of Carson Edwards, wasn't a you know wasn't something anybody any saw anybody saw coming, and and wasn't a fluke this year. They were a legitimately good team. Well, when Edwards played well, but they were a legitimately good team. Yeah, and, and I think if you look at the teams that lost um, outside of Purdue, because obviously they have to use Carson Edwards more than any other, uh, right? Any other team needs to use an individual player. The three teams that lost all kind of kept feeding the same hand, and it even when it wasn't working. Yeah, you know Gonzaga. They were passing up open threes to try and get the ball to Rui, and he mm. just wasn't. He would run into two guys on the interior, to throw up a bad shot, and and the ball would be going the other way. Uh, Brandon Clark only had ten shots; he made seven of them. Um, right. And Josh Perkins had a relatively good game, uh, but just had that one, as he called it, boneheaded play at the end, and that's how he's going to be remembered for this tournament. But. Kentucky kept going to PJ Washington, which was working, but they really didn't get anything from Hagen's. Um, and Travis was decent, but you know he was he was shooting efficiently, just didn't get a lot of shots. Yeah. And then obviously Duke with RJ Barrett and uh, Zion. Well, I want to I want to touch on this with Gonzaga because I think Gonzaga, Duke, and Kentucky with those late eight losses. Obviously, all three of those programs have national championship aspirations, Final Four aspirations every year. And all three have kind of been looked at with this Elite Eight loss as being a big disappointment. Which one of those do you think may have been the biggest disappointment? And I, since you follow Gonzaga so closely, what do you think that this loss means for the Gonzaga program, if anything? Um, I think that this is the first time heading into a season where Gonzaga really had national title aspirations. Mm-hmm. Heading into 2017, you knew they were going to be good, but I don't think anyone really expected to, them to be as good as they were. Um, and in you know when the last time uh, they 
made it to the as a one seed. Mm-hmm. Again, same thing. Kelly Olynyk wasn't necessarily seen of as being as good as he was going to be. Right. Um, you knew Kevin Pangos was going to be pretty decent, but this was the first time we're heading into the year. They really had those national title aspirations on their shoulders. They should be disappointed. I think that right now they're in a sort of a spot where next year they're going to take a bit of a step back. Um, mm-hmm. They're going to lose their starting point guard, who's been really the one constant over the last four to five years in Josh Perkins. Brandon Clark and Rui Hachimura are probably gone. Killian Tilly is probably gone, so they lose their entire front court. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Jones, who was a solid rotational piece off the bench, is gone. So really they have Corey Kispert and Zach Norvell um, and Philip Petrusev with his limited minutes um, and a bunch of freshmen. Yeah. And it's not the Duke-Kentucky freshmen. It's, it's a lot of three- and four-star freshmen. So they'll take a bit of a step back. They'll still probably be the favorite in the WCC, but they're, they're going to be like they were, you know, what, four years ago when they were a 10 seed. I really think that. I think they're going to be a pretty, you know, they're going to be a, a top team in the West, but they're not going to be an elite team in the country. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't doubt Mark Few. Like, right. I, they're still going to be in the tournament. They're still going to have a really good season. They're just not going to have that explosiveness and high talent level. I think that we've seen from the last couple of years. And they'll get it back, but it'll it'll mm-hmm. take at least a year to kind of get some of those guys going. I do think that this year is probably more of a disappointment for Duke than anybody else. Um, yeah, and Duke can... kind of stayed the same. They they never got really mm-hmm. that much better. They came in as a team that was billed as the most talented team. Now they weren't necessarily the number one, you know, top rated team coming into the season. Although that didn't really work out for Kansas either. So. Yeah, that was um, that was corrected after a week once we had that Kentucky game. Yeah, but. Uh, I think that heading into the tournament, and I had mentioned it earlier, it looked like they were set up to make a Final Four. Mm-hmm. And they just never performed. I mean, you expect them to blow out UCF. You expect yeah. them to beat Virginia Tech by double digits. Yeah, that Michigan State game is probably going to be close, but you expect them to beat Michigan State. Um, and the fact that they didn't, and the fact that they had you know, three of the top five draft prospects in the country on that team, and never developed the bench, never allowed the bench to really get any sort of momentum going, uh, hurt them in the end. And, and I think that this could go, for as much as I don't think Coach K should be hammered for losing in the Elite Eight, I think that this could go down as one of his less impressive coaching jobs as yeah. a coach, you know, in the last 20 years. Oh, for sure. And, you know, a, lot, a lot's been made of, of the Duke team and what went wrong and, and all of their flaws, all of which are true and, and you'll hear about. My big thing with this team, though, that, that I think has kind of been undercovered has been just the lack of the lack of confidence that everybody outside of Zion and RJ showed down the stretch of the season. We go back to January when they were steamrolling people. Trey Jones was contributing. Reddish was contributing even though he was struggling. Jack White wasn't in his O for forever slump from three-point range. The uh, Jeb Delorier wasn't fouling out every time he came on the court. Marcus Bolden was playing at a high level. You had guys who were contributing, and then as the season kind of went on and they became super reliant on Zion Williamson and then R.J. Barrett, you saw those guys, the, the role players, take a step back and be unwilling to contribute. 
be unwilling to set, but they were very content with just passing the ball to Zion and RJ whenever they could and standing in the corner. And that was something that they never were able to snap out of. It would have helped, I think, too, if Cam Reddish had been had played like a top five pick because he didn't at all this year. I, th- I think Reddish's play was one of the biggest disappointments of the year. I think he finished the year shooting below 33% from the field and had 96 turnovers to 70 assists. And I know he's not a playmaker, but that's that's not efficient basketball at all. And to, to be a third option and to not have the entire weight of the team on you, to put up those kind of numbers is not a good sign indicative of, of I think, what he's going to do moving forward. I, I would be scared to touch him with a lottery pick in this draft. I know he's got all the physical ability, but he didn't show anything this year. And I think that the the issue with it, and I and I think this kind of speaks more to the youth, and that this is where inexperience really hurts teams, is that they were they were really hot. Then Zion goes down. Then they lose mm-hmm. to UNC. They lose to Virginia. They lose to the top teams. Right. You know, they did beat Syracuse at Syracuse, but other than that, they lost to the the top teams in the ACC. Um, and Syracuse wasn't a top team, but they were a tournament team. And, you know, it hurt their confidence. And then Zion comes back and they win the ACC tournament. And I think that can kind of get into a player's head. Like, we need Zion to win. I'm not enough. You know, our play isn't enough without Zion. And then you start deferring to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, whereas more experienced players, I think, take losses a little bit better Mm-hmm. Um, they just but, know how to deal with it. They just know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. it. It surprised me too, and I think some of this may be the fact that they had such a short bench. Is early on in the season they got out in transition whenever they could. They ran and ran. I mean, you have all those athletes. It makes sense to run as much as you can, and they were unstoppable when they were on the break. It's why they blew out Kentucky in the opener the way they did. Was because they got a missed shot, got a turnover, and they were scoring three seconds later. That wasn't happening in February. That didn't happen in March. They they stopped playing to their advantage, so to speak. They were more content to, to settle in the half court and try and run some sort of fake offense that did end up working for them. But that's enough about Duke. Let's talk about the teams that are playing. We'll, we'll move to the final four. <laughs> of these four, because I think they're all somewhat similar outside of maybe Auburn, who do you think has the best chance to win the championship on Monday? I think that the best chance um, you have to go with Virginia. I think Virginia has shown this year that they are probably the most consistent team going both ways. I know they've struggled a little bit offensively at times, but I don't think that their struggles offensively have been that drastic. I think that where a lot of their struggles or where a lot of people are pointing to as struggles offensively are low scoring games, Mm -hmm. but they do play a really slow game so even if they're playing mediocre offense they're not going to score a lot of points mm-hmm. um i think that Virginia, or michigan state proved to me that you know we were both wrong about the fact that they were eventually going to get you know that those injuries are going to catch up to them they yeah. are getting contributions from everyone on the floor um, and cassius winston is playing like a true leader at the point mm-hmm. guard position i think that that said, while I give Virginia the best chance to win, I think that they 
are going to have the biggest issues. I think that Texas Tech and Michigan State both like to play a little bit slower mm-hmm. um, than average. So tempo is not going to be an issue. Auburn has a chance to really put Virginia into a spot that they're not comfortable with if they can continue to play fast and hit three-point shots. And if they can do that, and if they can hit three-point shots over Virginia, I think that they have a really good shot at winning that game. Mm-hmm. I think that that game is probably going to be not as close as the Michigan State-Texas Tech game because I think one, whichever team wins is going to win by multiple baskets. Yeah. Virginia In the Michigan State-Texas Tech game, I could see it being a – one, two, three point game. Yeah, the, the Auburn thing is scary for Virginia because they have the ability to go on just kind of the three point onslaught where you can blink and they're on a 10 0, 12 0 run, and a close game is now a 10 point game. And we've seen Virginia teams in the past when that's happened in the NCAA tournament, them kind of panic and not save the course, especially in the second half. They've done a better job of doing that this year. I've noticed they, they're more committed to the course, the 40 minute game plan, as opposed to trying to make up for things right away. Uh, and I think some of that pressure to do so maybe off of them now that they're in the final four, they don't feel like they need to prove any or as much to people as they had in the past when they didn't have this on their resume. The thing that scares me about Auburn though, uh, one is the Okiki injury, because I think inside they're, they're vulnerable. Uh, but two, I also think this feels like a destination for Auburn that make, just making the final four was the destination. Virginia has been talking. I I was scared about this with Virginia before the tournament started, that just getting to the final four for the first time under Tony Bennett was the goal. And throughout the tournament, they've talked about how, you know, they, they want to win the championship and it's been championship. It hasn't been final four. They've been focusing on every team, but the goal for them, and they've talked about this has been the championship. Auburn's goal seems to be just make the final four. And we've seen other teams, Auburn's not a, a true Cinderella, as Cinderella as you could get in this tournament, get to the final four and have that be the destination. And then they have a hard time ramping it back up again uh, for that semifinal. And they play a team that's a bit more determined and focused than they are. I think Auburn is in danger of that happening. But again, if they hit 15 threes, it's not going to matter. Right. And I think that Auburn facing Virginia in the first in the first game, in the final mm-hmm. four, as opposed to having to face a team like Virginia in the championship game, kind of benefits them because they get a full week to prepare for that defense. Yeah. And they get a full week to, to to run plays. And I do feel like when you're playing against good defenses on shorter notice, the, the defense benefits over the offense, I think. Um, because all a defense has to do is run their defense and play solid right. defense, where an offense has to, in two days come up with a strategy, come up with a game plan to score against that defense. And that's where Gonzaga really ran into issues is that they seemed to have this game plan set and they just didn't have enough uh, variety in what they were trying to do. Um, And I feel like their shooters wanted to, you know, they had this game plan in their mind and they weren't willing to shoot. So um, I feel like, Auburn can win that game in the final four. I don't think they can win the second game. I agree. I, I think on, on top of just the, the pace factor against Virginia, it's the fact that they're a lot more athletic in the backcourt. Jared Harper didn't have any problem driving around Kentucky's guards getting to the rim when he wanted to. And and he's kind of been a wild card for Auburn this year. He can play very out of control and kind of take Auburn out of some games. 
for when he's on, he's one of the better point guards in the country. And the way he went around Kentucky's guards makes me scared for what he has the potential of doing against Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome, who aren't necessarily the you know most fleet of foot guys, despite how, how good they are. I think Keegan Clark's going to be a major factor in that game because he's the guy they're going to put on Harper and task him with staying in front of him, kind of like they did with Carson Edwards. And I think he can, but then it comes into, okay, who guards Bryce Brown? Do you put DeAndre Hunter on Bryce Brown? And then have you know Guy or Jerome guarding um, you know Purifoy or somebody who could you know potentially get bodied down low. I think Auburn can present matchup problems that way, but I also don't know if they have the discipline to keep up with Virginia. Like I don't think they'll be able to, to stop Virginia offensively at all. No. Yeah, so no, I agree. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I, I agree. I think Virginia goes into this as the favorite and as the only one seed. I, I think that's to be expected. But I, I keep talking myself into the Texas Tech team. The more I, I watch them and talk about them, the more I like them and think they have a real chance to pull this off. Yeah, I, I like, I like Texas Tech Virginia as my national championship game. I do as well. I, I do as well, and I, I I hate doing that because, as you said, we've been so against Michigan State just because we thought the injuries would catch up to them, and it hasn't happened. And I feel like an idiot going against Izzo again and and Winston. But this Texas Tech team to me feels just re- a really special team. Yeah, and uh, you know, all four teams in this Final Four have come into the season well, maybe not Auburn, um, or at least to the, to the tournament. All four teams mm-hmm. came in with something to prove. Yeah, uh, Virginia last year obviously lost to a 16 seed, so they just wanted to get that off their back. You know, we are a team that can win in the tournament. <laughs> Auburn came opened up as one of the top teams in the SEC, one of the favorites to make the Sweet 16. Really struggled for most of the year, um, and came in as a five seed mm-hmm. and had to work their way through. Texas Tech opened the year as the pick to finish seventh in the Big 12 after losing all that talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were, there were still questions about them entering the tournament. Uh, I mean, they were top 10 team and were essentially the only top 10 team that nobody was talking about as a true competitor in the NCAA tournament. Uh, How much of that, though, do you think was the fact that they're Texas Tech? And then oh, that if they were lot. like an Iowa State or somebody, that they would have been talked about a lot more than they are. I think a lot of it has to do with that they're Texas Tech. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people viewed their conference championship, regular season championship, as a result of the Kansas yeah. uh, situation, not as a result of Texas Tech. Um, so I, I think, but they, again, they had to prove that they belonged. Mm-hmm. And Michigan State, Obviously, you and I both doubted them because of the injuries and, and the fact that they had to play Duke uh, to, to get to the Final Four. So they all had something to prove, and now they're here. So now it becomes who has the motivation, who has the composure, who has the wherewithal to withstand two, 80 more minutes of basketball, and they'll win. Um, I like Texas Tech. I think they've remained composed, the, mo- the most composed throughout the mm-hmm. tournament. Um, they're going to give Cassius Winston more issues than any team that Michigan State has played so far in the tournament. Yeah, and everybody is automatically giving the coaching advantage in that game to Tom Mezzo and Michigan State. And I think 
rightfully so, given what Izzo's done in his career. And he certainly has the experience advantage of playing in these big games. But I don't know if he necessarily has the coaching advantage. Uh, Chris Beard is is excellent. And if you take kind of Izzo's resume out and Beard's resume out and just look at kind of what they've done this year, I think Chris Beard wins that kind of one-off battle for just the season. And obviously it's, it's not just a, a one-season deal when it comes to the careers, but to think about what Beard's done, it's only his fourth year as a Division One coach. He's made the tournament three times. He's won a game three times. Uh, he's now been the Texas Tech's only two Elite Eights in school history and the only Final Four in school history. And he's done it without one. He's done it without his guys. Then when he's had his guys, they aren't the top-level recruits kind of guys. They are like Jerk Gold was a three-star who was from Lubbock and has developed into a top five pick now. Uh, Beard, I think, deserves a lot more credit than he's getting. Um, and, and I think while I, you know you can say Michigan State has an advantage in that area, and I'm not necessarily inclined to disagree with you given what we've seen from Izzo again, um, but I don't think there's a real gap there. I will say this. As a Gonzaga fan, this is the first NCAA tournament game tournament loss where I felt that Mark Few was just out coached mm-hmm. um, because some of their past losses, the loss to Duke, you know, Duke had just had more talent and, mm-hmm. and they went on to win the national championship game. UNC, you could argue that they had more talent. They had more experience um, and, and more size. Uh, last year, they didn't have the ability to spread, stretch, spread the floor against Florida state. Uh, there was no real answer, but I didn't feel like he got out coached. This was the first time where I genuinely felt like Texas Tech just had a better game plan mm-hmm. to deal with Gonzaga than Gonzaga had to deal with them. And it was the first time where the players looked lost on offense. Yeah, um, and the, the thing is, it's not any one thing Texas Tech does that wins them games. I mean, obviously their defense is great, and that's what they hang their hat on. But, you know, there are certain games where Tariq Owens goes off. There are certain games where, like, Matt Mooney, I think, had 19 or 17 against Gonzaga. Moretti's been contributing at a high level. You, you know you can rely on your defense in Culver, and you know that kind of gets you a certain baseline. And that's a pretty high baseline compared to a lot of other teams. And then they get all these extra factors that have taken them to another level, and they've been consistently getting a lot of those extra factors in these games. And I don't know if they necessarily slip up and have that next performance like they had against West Virginia in that big 12 tournament game. Yeah. And I think where Michigan state's going to have to win and it's where I felt like Gonzaga had to win, um, where Michigan had to win was their defense needs to be flawless Mm -hmm. because yeah, Texas tech's offense kind of slowed down in the second half, but Texas tech was having no issues with Gonzaga's defense in that first half. And against Michigan, Texas Tech's offense had really no issues with them in the second half. Um, and you're not you're not going to run up the score on Texas Tech. Your offense yeah. is just going to struggle. That's that's a fact. So your defense needs to win that game. And I'm not sure that I mean Michigan State's defense is a top ten defense. I'm not sure it's good enough to win. Yeah, I'm interested to see too because Cassius Winston had a lot of success against LSU and against Duke. I mean he's had success since everybody, but he had a lot of success in those two games, getting past his initial defender, getting into the lane, drawing a second defender, and then dishing it to the big guy, whoever's man came to help when he drove. 
dishing into that guy for an easy dunk or a, a short jumper or out to the three for an open three. That's kind of been his game plan and a thing that Michigan State has used all season long, but and especially in this tournament, to gain an advantage that's just Winston makes a play. Texas Tech is sharp enough in their rotations to where the, the help that comes for the helper is normally there. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to essentially think two or three moves ahead in terms of the defensive rotation to find the open man. Texas Tech makes theirs. And good point guards know kind of where when the help comes, where that is, where that guy's going. And even a guy's experience as Winston's as Winston is in this case, where that help where the helper's help comes from, he knows where that guy's gonna be. And a lot of times Izzo has it to where it's on the same side as a drive, to where there's you know, the open guy who they want to hit in the paint, the big man. And then if a help comes for him, that guy's usually coming from the same side corner or wing. At least an open three-point shooter. Texas Tech is going to limit those opportunities for Michigan State, where simply they they beat the rotation because Texas Tech's rotations on defense are so solid they cover everything mm-hmm. as well as you possibly can. And I think if when they Michigan State's best chance, and I don't know how big of a chance it is, but I think their best chance is if Winston is able to consistently beat the rotation. Right. And no one, no one really has yet. And that's no. kind of that's kind of the scary thing. And that's the thing is that Texas Tech invites you to get by that original man. Right. They just make sure that you do it along the baseline. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's almost like at points it's a false sense of security. You know, I beat my man, and there's two, three more guys with hands in my face. Um, they use and- the they use the sideline as an extra defender, which right. is is crucial to that system. Mm-hmm. And so. I feel like Gonzaga's best Gonzaga, I mean, their best offense was in transition because mm-hmm. it didn't allow Texas Tech to get into their defensive sets. Yeah. Uh, and their second best option was when it worked, when they weren't turning the ball over, was trying that high-low game. Um, yep. And just Texas Tech is so long that it's really hard to make those high-low passes. But when you do make those high-low passes, it it – they really don't have an answer for it. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched Michigan State enough, really, to analyze how good they are in the high-low, but Gonzaga is one of the best, and they were struggling with it as well. Their big men are good playmakers. They're comfortable with the ball. Mm-hmm. So getting the ball to the high post is going to be a key for them. And you know Izzo is going to try and find a way to, to have that happen. But Kenny Goins and Xavier Tillman are good with the ball in the high post. It's just a matter of – getting it there that could be the problem yeah so i think we agree texas tech's winning that game mm-hmm. we have virginia winning beating auburn right. somewhat similar style matchup in the championship game then with virginia and texas tech who would you give the edge to it depends on which texas tech team shows <laughs> up um if they're i mean they were in the first half, I was kind of fine with how close it was because none of the shots Texas Tech was hitting were really that wide open. Mm-hmm. They were just hitting shots. Um, they were they hit three or four contested threes in that first half, and not like a, a late contest. They had you know a Zach Norvell or a Brandon Clark in the face of the defender and hit a contested three. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's really what they're going to have to do against Virginia to beat that defense. Uh, I think Texas Tech's offense may be better equipped to beat Virginia's defense than the other way around. I really don't want to say Texas Tech wins the national championship, but I, I, from what I saw, I was impressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, I've gone back and forth on this one. And I, I think the difference in the game is going to be DeAndre, should they play? The difference in the game would be DeAndre Hunter's ability to limit Jarrett Culver offensively. Because I think where teams beat Virginia is with their athleticism in the backcourt and neutralizing Guy and Jerome defensively. Texas Tech doesn't have that advantage with Moretti and Mooney. Both of them are good players, but I think you'd take both Guy and Jerome over them every time. Mm -hmm. Culver is the guy who who makes the difference and allows those guys to get open shots and, and be effective in their roles. And I think Hunter is somebody who can slow him defensively. It would be a game I think we see played in the low 50s, just kind of one of those ugly games everyone complains about college basketball afterwards and why it's not as fun as the NBA and blah, 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 blah. You know, all the same stuff we every time defensive teams play each other. Um, So I I think I would still take Virginia in that regard. Um, But I I do love the Texas Tech team. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it'll be it would be close, maybe one or two possessions, but I would take Virginia and just sort of the added drive. I think yeah. making a difference at some point in that game, and then winning maybe fifty four fifty one. Yeah, and, and obviously, I mean, my thing is is that the first two games are going to be based on how fast they're played, how what the score is. I think mm-hmm. that Michigan State and Auburn both want high scoring games. Um, Michigan State doesn't generally want really high-scoring games, but against Texas Tech, I think they want a high-scoring game because Michigan State is more consistent offensively. The question is if Michigan State can outscore Texas Tech. That's right. a big key. Yeah. <laughs> Always got to score more points. But, no, I, I, I would agree with you, but given the injuries, Michigan State hasn't shown the ability um, – to put up 80, 85 points in a game. I'm not saying 80, 85. I'm saying 70. Yeah. Well, I mean, Texas Tech is scoring 70 on a, on a fairly regular basis over the past month or so. Yeah. So it's, true. you know, I don't know if there's necessarily a huge – Texas Tech wants to play slower than Michigan State does. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly agree with you on that. But I think kind of their target isn't too far off from each other. Yeah. But, but it definitely isn't that Virginia-Auburn game. Auburn wants it to be in the yeah. 80s. Virginia wants it to be in the 60s. Um, no matter who Virginia plays, should they beat Auburn, it's both teams are going to want it to be a little bit low scoring. And yeah. that's what Virginia likes. <laughs> um, you, the, so. you don't beat Virginia playing Virginia style basketball. No. And that's my issue, I think, with the two teams. And the only reason why I don't say Texas Tech, or I would say that Texas Tech or Michigan State won't win the national championship, is that Neither team is going to want to speed up the game, mm. but both teams are going to have to speed up the game. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree. I, it'll be an amazing story for a team to go from losing to a 16 seed to win the championship the next year. Yeah. And I think that would be a really great legacy for this Virginia team because for how good they've been the last two years, 
three and all three Tony Bennett's tenure for this particular team the last two years is worthy of winning a national championship. Mm-hmm. And you know they've kind of embraced that 16 seed losing. You know that that loss they've embraced it, but using that to turn around and win a championship, I think, would be kind of one of those stories that uh, I think resonates for for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely think that the fact that most of the players on this Virginia team were playing in that game. Yeah. Um, you know, any other team, like if Duke, for example, had lost to a 16 seed and then they lose half their starters, uh, to yeah. the draft or whatever, I don't know if they would have necessarily had the same level of motivation to turn it around, but you, you have Guy, Jerome, who were really the leaders on last year's team and they're back. Yeah, it's it's going to play a factor. I, I think we'll see Virginia play a little bit more free as well because they're here. They've they've validated themselves to some degree, and now they want to go kind of get what they want as opposed to trying to prove people wrong. And right. I think we could see that that play a factor as well. All right, so we both got Virginia over Texas Tech. Yeah, I think I have game. to. Um, I wouldn't be surprised the other way, but Virginia is just – they're the best team in the country. Yep. And won't be a day for people who like up-tempo fast basketball, but no. I, I think it would be a well-played game and, and one that would bode well for college basketball, rewarding a program that's kind of been on the rise and one of the, the better young coaches in Tony Bennett. So I think, I think we'll see that, and it would set the stage for an interesting offseason, I think, as well. Which is already, already starting. Can I just talk about that? I mean, we've seen – coaching carousels and Mm -hmm. transfers already popping up and way earlier than last year, way earlier than any year I can remember. There are people are are ready to go on it. They've, they've, you know, haven't, haven't waited till there's an official end of the season. As soon as they get a chance to, they're, they're making the poll. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll touch on that. I guess we'll touch (laughs) on that real quick next week. I know after the season, we'll recap the championship game. And talk about some more of those coaching carousel changes, things to expect in the offseason. But so far, what do you think has been your most interesting move, whether it be a coaching hire or a grad transfer recruit or just a recruit different transfer who could make an impact somewhere? Um, well, I think the most interesting story is going to be the fact that UCLA might not find a good hire. Yeah. Um, I think – for as, as much as Alford disappointed the fan base, the fact that he got to the Sweet 16 in, what, over half his season there mm-hmm. and uh, really was on the hot seat from day one uh, on a, for a program that is a blue blood but hasn't played like a blue blood in 10 years. Yeah. Um, a lot of top coaches are going to stay away, uh, from the program. I think that, I mean, the most interesting move for me, obviously is, is UK signing Calipari to a <laughs> lifetime contract. I, I was happy that happened. I think, I think that's kind of a perfect marriage yeah. of those two. And, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't see them moving on from him anyway. So I, I, mm-hmm. why not just pay up and take care of your guy? Yeah. The two, the two that... It didn't surprise. Well, one didn't surprise me. I think Nate Oates is a home run hire for mm-hmm. Alabama. Oh yeah. Um, 
the one that surprised me, and not so much that the school wanted him, but that he wanted the school, was the uh, Kyle Smith to Washington State. Yeah. I thought for sure he would be the next in line for that Cal job, considering he has recruited to the Bay Area mm-hmm. and Cal, you know, has been at the bottom of the conference. So it's not like they're they're in any position to want a fantastic coach. Um, but I, I think that he'll do good in at Washington State. I think the expectations are low there. Which yeah. There's, there's less pressure mm-hmm. for sure. And I, I think when you're making a jump from a San Francisco, I think that can play somewhat of a factor. Um, I don't think Cal's a school that has ridiculous expectations by any means. I mean, they, they went out and hired Mark Fox. So obviously, it's not huge expectations for them. But, you know, they, they want to get back to the Pac-12, back to the top of the Pac-12 fairly quickly. Right. Yeah. But I actually and, they may, think, and they may not have the resources to do so. Well, and that's, that's what I was thinking was I actually think that if they had switched the coaching hires – it would have made more sense to me. I think that Mark Fox is one of those coaches that can kind of consistently compete, won't necessarily put you over the top, but you'll be competitive, which is the perfect coach for Washington State. Mark Fox also isn't looking necessarily to keep jumping up, so he could stay in Pullman for a long time. And I think that the ability to recruit to Cal is a little bit better um, than Washington State. Mm -hmm. Kyle Smith knows the Bay Area recruits better than Mark Fox probably does. And it's a better jumping off point. I feel like you can see your success can be a lot higher. And if you wanted to then jump to a bigger job than Cal, you can. Other than Tony Bennett, um, there really hasn't been a big jump from Washington State to another program since like Calvin Sampson. Yeah. I I will say the bar at Washington State for success where you would be able to then get credit for it and then jump somewhere else is a lot lower at yeah. Washington State. If they if he somehow leaves Washington State to an NCAA tournament, he would have any job he wants because he took Washington State to the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, there gives and takes to that. I, Cal's the better job, mm-hmm. but I can see the appeal of potentially starting something and not having as much pressure on yeah. you. I might. I was surprised slash happy. And also really looking forward to Fred Hoiberg at Nebraska. Yeah. I think Nebraska has started to put some money into the, the basketball program and kind of care about that. And the Big Ten, in that area of the Big Ten, kind of the, the to go football, the Big Ten West, there's room for somebody to emerge from there to challenge Michigan, Michigan State, Maryland, um, kind of from, from that section of the conference. Right. And I think with Hoiberg and – just Nebraska, I think he could take them up to being a top 25 team on a fairly consistent basis. It would be a lower-end top 25 team. But that's kind of what I, what I think is a potential to do for them, which I'm excited to see. And I also think the UCLA – I'm sorry to, to kind of jump so quickly into that, but I wanted to touch on this. It is kind of funny to me that they've missed on all these top guys, but I think it's going to be better for them in the end as long as they don't make a panic move right now. So now right now they're looking at Jamie Dixon and um, Mick Cronin, which would be stupidly hilarious. And I, I think both those guys are, are, are fine coaches, but are not meant for the UCLA job. They, they think, either need to hire someone who's been incredibly successful in the NCAA tournament, um, maybe not necessarily Final Four successful, but 
have made elite eights um, mm -hmm. and sweet 16s on a consistent basis, or they need to go out of the box and hire. So I know Earl Watson was a name being thrown around. Um, hire yeah. someone who hasn't had any real NCAA tournament history because if they go out and hire Mick Cronin, whether you think Mick Cronin is a good coach or not, the UCLA fan base will blast that move. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I understand them wanting to go after all the top names, even though it was incredibly unrealistic to go after the guys that went after, the Tony Bennett's, the John Calipari's. You weren't getting those guys. Mm -hmm. And I think it puts them in a position now to go – or would have put them in a position now to go after some of the better – younger mid major coaches kind of the up and comers that i think would be better fits at ucla and, and probably better coaches long term than a cronin or a dixon or second tier kind of guy the problem is a lot of those pretty much all those good ones outside of maybe wes miller at unc greensboro have taken jobs elsewhere the guys who you knew were, were going are, are good guys like if ucla got nato notes i think that would have been a great hire they could still maybe get him away from alabama and pull a chris beard but they've kind of missed out on, on those high-level guys. So I think the play for UCLA now is to wait until the NBA season ends in a couple of weeks and get an NBA guy. Get Luke Walton. Yeah. Get, you know, Earl Watson will be there, and I, I think he'd be a good hire as well. But I think UCLA's play right now is to get an NBA guy. Yeah. If only Russ Turner hadn't stuck his foot in his mouth. That <laughs> – I mean, you can do that as a coach. I have no problem with that. Just don't say you did it, like, or at least apologize and pretend like you care. Yeah, just because um, he's a he's a damn good coach, and it's it's just frustrating when coaches put themselves in positions where they can't move up. You know, no yeah. one's going to take him now for the next two to three years until that kind of gets buried in history. And um, yeah. I, I know – I think UCLA's next choice, if they had their way, is Billy Donovan with Oklahoma City. And mm -hmm. I think they'll probably wait until Oklahoma City season ends yeah. to go after him, which I think is a colossal mistake. Because Billy Donovan is not leaving three more years of Westbrook and Paul George for UCLA. Mm -hmm. At least three more years because they're under contract for three more years. He's not leaving that willingly to yeah. go to UCLA. An interesting name. Um, I don't know how realistic it is to expect anyone to really make a play for him. Brad Stevens is struggling with the egos uh, of the NBA. I think he's a, he's a good coach, but not necessarily a good mediator of egos. That said, UCLA is going to by nature have egos. So um, uh, the problem in Boston is not Brad Stevens. No, it's not. It's a certain Kyrie Irving who thinks he's better than Brad Stevens, which is not true. Yeah. I, I, I think you said, I understand you say wanting to go after him, mm -hmm. but I think the Celtics have a front office with Danny Ainge who knows Brad Stevens' value mm -hmm. and knows that maybe they need to make some roster makeup changes, kind of yeah. shake shake things up there because the coach isn't the problem. Yeah. He may not be having a great gear and have, you know, because no one there is having a fun year, but, you know, gets the playoffs and they win a series or two, narrative completely changes, mm -hmm. you know, 
So I, I think it's natural for UCLA to have that pipe dream, but I wouldn't hold out hope. No, no, I think that honestly, if I were to, if I were UCLA, realistically, I think Luke Walton is probably the best choice. Um, I the think thing that, with Luke Walton, though, if you wait long enough, that Arizona job is probably going to come open after the FBI trial. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you don't want to have happen. I think it depends on what the NCAA ends up doing with these programs. Because what coach is going to want to take a job with a program yeah. that's sanctioned? Yeah, that's true. That's very true. I, I, I think Will Wade has a chance of surviving, depending on mm -hmm. what comes out. If any minor thing damning comes out of that for Arizona and Sean Miller, he's done. Because that mm -hmm. school, I think, is past its point with him and dealing with all this crap they, they've had to kind of put up with for the last two years. Yeah. I think just one little thing comes out, they're just going to be over it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, definitely. I, that's going to be the next – I mean, we're not going to have basketball – between what Tuesday night after the women's championship and November, but we're going to have a, a lot of stories to follow because. Oh yeah, it'll, it'll be good. And we'll, we'll be back on after the championship game, talking about that, looking ahead to all the off season, all the big coaching changes, get more in depth on all of it. And look kind of ahead to some of the big storylines and uh, maybe teams to watch for next year. Yeah. I think that would be fun. Mm -hmm. Yep. Definitely. So we'll be on uh, next week. Obviously, we're going to have a lot to talk about with the championship game. We're also going to probably be giving our season end awards. Um, best player, best team, most surprising, stuff like that. So stay tuned for that. With that, I'm Connor Hope. For my co-host, Brian Ralph, we will talk to you guys next week.